listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for May 2015. Today's episode is titled Management Prayer. To build excellent organizations requires obedience to the best practices of economics and business established by the Creator. It isn't enough to build an organization with workers limited to the empowerment afforded by common grace. Management must seek to find and build with workers who are empowered by God to obey divinely defined best practices, that is, workers who are working congruent with their callings and in accordance with the Christian worldview. One of the key practices of wise management is to fervently pray for their workers to be firmly established in the calling of God on their lives and to fulfill that calling using the divinely ordained best practices. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Management Prayer. Well, this morning we want to talk about Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. We're continuing our study of the book of Colossians. And in particular, we're focusing on the seminal principle of Christianity that applies to all jurisdictions of Christianity. And this is whatever you do in word or work, that word there literally is the word for work. It's translated deed by, uh, by some translators like the New King James did anyway. But it really is the word for work. It's saying do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So the book of Colossians is a book that lays out Christianity arguably in one of the most systematic and logical ways of Scripture. Now, I know the book of Romans is a very logical presentation of the gospel, but Colossians really is a very logical presentation of Christianity, the big picture of Christianity. Uh, Paul wrote this toward the end of his life, obviously had many years of reflection and prayer and and growth through uh, the Holy Spirit that taught him what Christianity was. So he expressed it, I think, as eloquently here as he's done in any of his writings that we have as part of Scripture. And in his presentation of the book of Colossians, he takes us first in chapter 1 through the theological foundation of Christianity, which is Christ. There is nothing uh, more clear than Christianity is based on Christ. Christianity means to be a follower of Christ. And then he, in chapter 2, he launches into the philosophy that flows from Christianity and warns about other philosophies that are, that, are, that are appealing that might be trying to distract us from the true focus on Christ. Then in chapter 3, he, he moves into the value system that flows from Christianity. And again, he's contrasting the value system of Christianity to very commonly accepted values in the world. And as he gets to the middle of chapter 3, he rolls from the value system into the principles, and he gives us the most important principle, the seminal principle from which virtually all other principles flow here in Colossians 3.17. Then in Colossians 3.18, he launches into a discussion of practices. How do you practice the seminal principle? How do you do everything in word and work in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What does that look like? And so some of the practices he begins to mention here, and I'm just going to read some of these off to you. As you read on in Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, he talks about how wives submit to their husbands. And husbands are to love their wives, that is, sacrificially serve their wives. They're, 
the best interest of their wives, which is not their wives' will, but God's will for their wives. Children obey their parents. So the very first jurisdiction he addresses here in Colossians 3 about practices is the home. If the home is out of order, everything else is going to be out of order. So getting the home right is really, really important to those of us that profess Christ. Then he rolls into the workplace. He talks about workers obeying their bosses as they would obey the Lord, making obedience to bosses a holy activity, something to be done in the fear of the Lord, a very, very sobering way to look at that. He also talks about workers are to work out of a passion to the Lord because they know that ultimately their remuneration, their ultimate reward will come from the Lord. They will be inheritance, those who inherit the kingdom. That's the ultimate reward. Now keep in mind that we labor and we work not to be accepted with God. That is the purview of Christ and his work alone. We come to accept the place of acceptance by virtue of receiving the free gift of eternal life through the work of Christ. However, once you have accepted Christ, the way that you demonstrate and validate that you indeed are a Christian is that you faithfully serve the Lord. So when we talk about work, we're talking about displaying the reality of Christ in you, the hope of glory, displaying reality that you have the Holy Spirit, displaying the reality that you are born again. That's what you're doing through the work. The work this is not a work of performance. It's a work that reveals your relationship with Christ. Then he goes into a discussion in chapter 4 about bosses and how bosses are to commission their workers, set the context for the workers to really do what the workers are called to do. Then he talks about prayer and how important prayer is. We need to be vigilant in prayer with thanksgiving. Then he talks about praying for the opportunity to serve Christ and the grace to serve Christ well with these opportunities. It's not enough to have an opportunity. You need the grace to take advantage of that opportunity and glorify God through how you take advantage of that opportunity. He then talks about walking wisely before unbelievers, redeeming the time. He talks about speaking wisely. And then in the last part of chapter 4, he talks about living in community. And last time we talked about how you have to embrace the true gospel of the kingdom to really walk well in community and to be able to fully walk out the reality of doing everything in word and deed in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so now we come to verse 12 of chapter 4, and this verse, he's going to give us an amazing reality about prayer that I, in my experience as a believer, I don't know that I've ever seen anyone live this out well. I don't even know if I've ever seen one live it out even mediocre. My experience is people almost have no clue about this at all. So I'm going to read the text to you, and uh, then we'll talk a little bit about it. Uh, Paphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Now, what makes this thing so amazing is the intensity with which this activity is done. He's saying, labor fervently in prayer. Fervently, with intensity. The word here that uh, it's, it's a word that uh, it's, it's, we get the word agony from it. It's agonizomai. 
in Greek. It means to contend with or struggle with difficulties, dangers, and or adversaries. It's used uh, in, in a number of texts in the New Testament. For example, it's, it appears seven times. It appears twice in the book of Colossians. And it's, it's used, for example, in Luke 13, verse 24, referring to responsible action of those who truly know the Lord. There it tells us to strive to enter the narrow gate. That word strive there, most of us think striving is bad. Well, striving to be accepted with God is bad. But striving to live out obedience to God because we've been accepted is what he's talking about here. And that means we have responsibility to live out the reality of our profession. We profess Christ. What's the evidence that we've really really come to Christ? Then we will labor to walk the narrow way. And the narrow way is the way of the will and ways of God. That's what makes it narrow, because everything within us does not want to do that. We want to do our will according to our ways, and we want God to bless that. And that's not the way God works. So walking the narrow way is dying to self to do God's will according to God's way. So that's Luke 13, 24. Then John 18, 36, uh, he talks about, uh, uses the same word, agonizomai, uh, to refer to a military campaign. And where Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, meaning it were a physical kingdom right now, my servants would fight. That's agonizomai. They would struggle. They would contend. They would try to, to, to see that I am installed and I rule and reign. Well, that's, that's clearly not the plan and purpose of God. So that was not going to happen. But nevertheless, he uses the term there to indicate the, the difficulty that his servants would contend with were they to fight that battle. Now, there's also, it's also used in 1 Corinthians 9.25 of an athletic competition. If anyone competes for the prize, uh, you know, let it, he's got to uh, go about it with, uh, you know, strong competition. The word compete is not probably as strong as it should be there, but there's an a, a indication of really a lot of hard work and effort that goes into that. Then in First Colossians 1.29, uh, which is the other text in Colossians where you find this word agonizomai, he is talking about bringing people to completion in Christ. And how that is Paul's primary objective. His objective as an apostle, as a Christian, as a discipler, is to help people find the purpose of God for their life. You can see that in Colossians 1.28. And then in verse 129, he says, to this end, that is to the end of bringing you into alignment with the will and ways of God, the purpose of God for your life, I also labor striving according to his working which works in me mightily. In other words, I am empowered to do this work, and I labor at it. I put great energy and effort into it. Then you have it in Colossians 4.12, which is what we're talking about today. And 1 Timothy 6.12, it's admonishing people to run their race, fight the good fight, lay hold of eternal life. Keep in mind, you're not working your way to eternal life. You're validating that you have been saved by virtue of your obedience, and 2 Timothy 4, 7, uh, again, it's the same kind of thing, validating your running your race. So you can see how the word is used in the New Testament and the intensity with which this word, it, it carries with it. So one of the key traits of this prayer here is it's intense. 
It's an intense prayer in, that's intended to convey a great deal of mental, emotional, and physical energy are going into praying for the Colossians. I am fervently laboring for you in prayers. And by the way, that word prayer there is indeed a is in plural. It's multiple prayers. You see, Epaphras didn't just simply pray once. I'm reminded of a, a man who was married many years ago, and um, he never told his wife, you know, after they got married that he loved her. And finally, one day, his wife goes to him and says, you know, you never tell me that you love me. And he said to her, well, I told you when we got married, and if anything changes, I'll let you know. Well, that's kind of a humorous story, which uh, doesn't show much wisdom on his part. And by the way, he eventually wound up divorced. But Epaphras is showing here that he doesn't just pray once. Yeah, he doesn't just expect that's going to be adequate. He feels he has an obligation before the Lord to pray fervently many, many times, over and over again. That's probably part of the laboring is the repetition, over and over again, praying for this same thing. Another thing that's interesting about this prayer is that Epaphras, at the time of the writing of this epistle, is not with the Colossian church. He is many, many miles away with Paul and Roman. Roman, and so here you have him in Paul's presence, you know, laboring in prayer for these Colossians that are hundreds, maybe thousands of miles away, which shows you that distance is not an issue. You know, wherever you're connected with people. It doesn't matter how far apart you are, you can pray and labor on their behalf. So I call this prayer at a distance. Uh, that comes from, um, in physics, there's a terminology called action at a distance. Uh, for example, the circulation of the moon around the Earth is action at a distance. And what we mean by that is there's no known mechanical connection between the moon and the Earth. And yet the, the moon circulates around the Earth so there's obviously a force field. So we'll talk about action at a distance, referring to that force field. Well, I think that's a good picture here for prayer at a distance. Prayer is like a force field. It is drawing you to Christ. And as I'm praying over you, praying for those that I'm called to disciple, then it's drawing them in some ways that we can't really fully understand. It's drawing them into Christ. And that's part of God's mechanism. He set that in place. He wants prayer. He wants us to be devoted to prayer, we're told in Colossians 4.12. We should labor at prayer, we're told here in Colossians 4.12. So over and over again, we need to really get it that prayer counts. Prayer is something that's valuable to God. Then you've got to be clear on who, you, who you're praying for. Who, who's your focus? You know, Epaphras is not just praying for the world. You know, many times we pray very generally. And you've heard Dennis talk about general prayers are answered generally and specific prayers are answered specifically. Well, I think this is some evidence of that reality. You, you see Epaphras praying very specifically for the Christians at Colossae, whom he has discipled. He has given birth to this movement there and, and labored to help these people grow up in Christ. And now... Paul's spiritual father, Paul, or excuse me, Epaphras' spiritual father, Paul, is now writing this letter to his spiritual grandchildren at Colossae, and at the same time, Epaphras is carrying these children in his heart, as a father would carry his own children. 
He's very focused on this is my spiritual family. These are the people I'm called to serve, and I, I'm going to pray diligently and faithfully for them. Then you notice that responsibility here is important. Prayer is the predicate for responsible action. Now, the way we see that best is you take, the, take a look at the word stand. Okay, The prayers, you know, he's laboring fervently in prayers, multiple prayers, over and over again, that you may stand. Now, that word stand is very interesting. In the Greek language, we have much more precision about what he's trying to say. The word literally means to make firm or fixed. The tense is the aorist tense in the Greek language. The aorist tense in the Greek language implies no specific time. It many times refers to things that happened in the past, but there's not really any specific time that's noted by that tense. It's just a statement of reality that you may stand. And it's active voice, which means that the subject is doing the action. Well, the subject of the verb is you. You may stand. So that it's up to you to do the actions necessary to stand. Now, that's very important. And if you don't, you don't get that, you may think that the prayers will make you stand. No, the prayers are something that God is going to use to move in you to make you stand. And so the prayers have a role, but you have a role. The disciples have a role. They've got to step up and take responsibility. Prayer is the predicate for responsible action. Prayer is not a substitute for responsible action on the part of the one receiving the prayer. So we've got to get very clear that there is responsibility on the part of the Colossians to step in to the reality of standing of being firm or fixed, obviously, in Christ, and in reality of what the subject of the prayer is, which we'll get to in just a moment. Then the point here that he's making here is the whole topic that he's after is what is he praying for? He's praying for two, two things are noted here, and that is that you may stand perfect, and that's the word teleos, which means brought to its end, finished or completed. You may stand Obviously, the verb there being in the aorist tense is not referring to any particular time. The implication is that there is a process that you're entering into to get to completion, and I'm looking ahead to the end of the process when you are perfect, but you stand in that process, so as you stand in that process, you are being completed. And then he says complete, and that's the word plero, and we, uh, we get plenty from that. So that's filling up. That is like taking a cup and filling it up, and it's overflowing. It's totally full. So it's interesting. He uses these two ideas of being brought to completion and being totally filled, and the, the, what you're supposed to be completed in and filled in is all the will of God. Not your will according to your ways. It's God's will according to God's ways. So what a, what a robust prayer we have here focused on finding and fulfilling the purpose of God for a person's life. Now, it's interesting that, uh, you know, this is not the first time in this epistle where he's talked like this. We could go back to chapter 1, 
And we, we find the, that very robust prayer that begins in verse 9 where it talks about he's praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of the will of God. So that's the word teleos there. But now in verse 12 of chapter 4, he adds to teleos, plero. So we have now it's like an expansion here. Now what kind of helps us understand uh, the comparison between chapter 1 and chapter 4 here is to understand Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry is always in the form of couplets. So just like we in English, many times we'll use English poetry, rhyme and rhythm and things like that to communicate with. Um, many times we're not talking about a specific poem. We're just talking dialogue in someone, and we might say something with rhyme or, or rhythm with it just to be kind of emphasis, to be interesting. Well, they do that too with the Greek language. And, of course, they were bringing their Hebrew tradition. Paul was a very, very strongly trained Hebrew who had been trained in Hebrew poetry. And so it's possible that he brought that couplet style to his writing here. And perfect and complete are actually poetic in the sense that he's conveying something that to a, a trained Hebrew, they would have seen it as poetry, and it would have been emphasis for them. They would have noted it with special emphasis. So there are three types of couplets in the Hebrew language. There is the synonymous couplet, the synthetic couplet, and the antithetical couplet. The synonymous couplet is where you say the same thing two different ways. The synthetic couplet is when you say, you say one thing and then you add to it with the second part of the couplet. The antithetical couplet is when you say two totally different things. Well, we know this, that he's not being antithetical here. This, that's, that rules that one out. So either this is a synonymous or synthetic. If it's a synonymous, then what he's saying is that perfect, teleos, and being full, plero, is really the same thing. It's just two different ways of saying the same thing. So that would be the synonymous. If it's synthetic, then you know the perfect or complete is being expanded on with the idea of being full. So the idea of being complete, coming to completion, finding the purpose of God in my life is about now being overflowing with the will of God. So to me, it's, it's one of the two, either synonymous or synthetic, and I think both of them have some interesting uh, appeal to as far as understanding this text. And finally, you need to understand that, that with this um, word that for stand here, there's risk implied. Let me go back to that, that you may stand. You'll notice in my, my notes here where I talk about the active tense, uh, active voice, aorist tense, but subjunctive mood. Now, the subjunctive mood in the Greek language implies it's not certain. The indicative mood means I'm going to tell you something that's certain. But the subjunctive mood implies there's risk. Uh, you might not do this. You may not stand. I'm praying that you will. In fact, I'm wrestling. I'm agonizing. I'm contending in prayer for you that you will stand. But I know there's risk you may not stand. So one of the things you learned in the BLS is that faith has risk associated with it, that walking by faith is not a rigged game. You're not guaranteed that you will walk by faith. You have to step up to your responsibility. Again, you are not earning anything with God in terms of salvation, but you are demonstrating by faithfulness that you indeed do belong to God.
So the risk here is will you step up and validate your, your salvation? Peter talks about in cha chapter 1 of 1 Peter, be diligent to make your calling and election sure. I mean, you have a responsibility. So there's risk here that we may not do our responsibility. So prayer is not guaranteed to be efficacious. There is risk. The reality of this risk is reflected in the use of this subjunctive mood here for the word that, that's translated to stand. And finally, the content here is the will of God. It's all about the will of God. It's never about our will. It's always about what's in it for God. God has a specific will, what he wants done. He has a specific will for your life, what he wants you to do. And he has a specific way he wants you to do it. It's called the ways of God, which largely are revealed in Scripture. As we read Scripture, we're getting to know him and know how he wants us as his obedient servants to function. So you can see this is the stress of the true prayer of a discipler for those that he is discipling, the disciplees. So this is the way we need to be praying for those that we're called to serve. We need to be praying prayers of alignment with the will and ways of God. Now, sadly, we're in a culture today that does not embrace that. The Christian community, by and large today, is focused on what I call postmodern prayers, meaning it's all about you know, man's will and man's ways. And what man, what man wants is to live a happy, easy, carefree life the way they want to live it, doing what they want to do, when they want to do it, how they want to do it. That is not the Apostles' Prayer at all. And so we've got to get very clear that, that is a, that's a prayer that's outside alignment with God. That is not a prayer worth uttering. That's a prayer you die to. You die to that so that you can truly pray the will of God into people's lives. You know, when we, we have prayer regularly at our church and we get prayer requests uh, from people, and one of the things that we're committed to, and I'm grateful to the men that, that I pray with, that we're committed to praying biblical prayers, prayers of alignment with God. So we many times have to reinterpret these prayers and bring them into alignment with God. That's the only way I think we can pray truly prayers in the spirit of Epaphras, where we're laboring fervently that you may stand complete, filled up in all the will of God. That's what we're praying for everyone, every day that we're called to. So focus on your garden. Focus on the people you're called to serve. So let me just give you some thoughts as you think about how to apply this. Have you identified your disciples? Those are the ones you're called to pray fervently for. Are you devoted to praying for them? Colossians 4.2 says we're to be devoted to prayer. This is a consistent habit. We pray all the time, continuously, whether it's, you know, we should be praying daily, and in some cases you may be meeting with people, you know, weekly. We had an all-day prayer at our church yesterday. We do that maybe two or three times a year. These are various venues we do, but prayer is a big part of our life. Our church has prayer every Sunday morning for anyone that wants prayer, and we're trying to get the intercessors focused on praying the will of God into people, which that's a challenge because most people don't want that. They want God to do their will. They don't want to die to do God's will. But we have to learn to pray God's ways. So you've got to be devoted to prayer. It's got to be a lifestyle of prayer. 
Prayers have to be aligned with the will and ways of God. There's no other true valid prayer. And finally, are you helping them find and fulfill the purpose of God for their lives? If you're not doing that with the people you're called to disciple, then what are you doing? You know, that that is all about the will of God. God has a specific will for each person. And those of us that are clear on this point, we must be about walking that reality and helping others walk that reality. That's what Paul did. That's what Epaphras did. May we have the grace to do that as well in Jesus' name.